0: Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com.
1: With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on Logistics Insights at maersk.com slash insights.
0: Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirer's Podcast. My special guest today is Andrew Walker of Rangeley Capital. He runs the Special Ops Fund there. We're going to talk about SPACs. We're going to talk about Dropbox. We're going to talk about how you find companies transitioning from small micro special situations into compounders where he sees match where he sees iac where he sees angie's list right after this
1: tobias carlisle is the founder and principal of acquires funds for regulatory reasons he will not discuss any of the acquires funds on this podcast all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquires funds or affiliates for more information visit acquiresfunds.com
0: What's your background, Andrew?
1: Okay, Uh, so my background, uh, you know, I I graduated and went and worked for a lot of the traditional kind of finance and uh, consulting firms. And about five years ago, I was thinking about moving, continuing kind of on that ladder and moving up in the big. in the finance world with a bigger firm. And, you know, I loved it there. I've got I know a lot of people like to hate on uh, private equity firms and all this, but I found the people there were fantastic. They were sharp. They were nice. I I loved working there. I've got nothing but praise to say about them. Um, So I was thinking about staying there. And uh, about five years ago, I was like, well, you know, I was 27 and single at the time. I was like, if I'm ever going to go do something a little more entrepreneurial where I can kind of call my own shots and go on a podcast when I want to and, and all this sort of stuff and hustle, like hustle a little bit more. Not that I wasn't working hard, but just like kind of start something and grow with my own hands. Now's probably the time. So uh, about five years ago, I, I talked to Chris DeMuth and uh, his partners at Range of Capital for a while. And uh, about five years ago, I, I made the switch and went over to Rangeley and launched my own fund. And uh, from that, you know, I run my own fund. I work with Chris, and uh, we, we've got a lot of—I don't want to call them side hustles because they all like kind of work together. But you know, I've got all the public-facing stuff: yet another value blog, yet another value podcast, all this type of stuff that have come out of that as well. How
0: did you meet Chris?
1: So I was—I uh, was really uh, about when I was in college. I was writing a. Uh, very small time website called Whopper Investments. Um, And it was mainly focused on real deep value stuff, stuff that I I think you probably know pretty well, Uh, you know, micro caps, net nets, all that type of stuff. And we actually uh, overlapped on a couple of different investments. But the 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 coolest one was there was this one investment. It was a hundred million dollar cable channel called out. I think it was Outdoor Networks. And they got a bid to get bought out for eight dollars per share. And a month later, Stanley Kroenke, who he's married into the Walmart fortune, he owns the uh, the Colorado a- Avalanche and the I think he owns the uh, the Denver Broncos. I think he's the owner of the Denver Broncos. But anyway, he's like a multi-multi billionaire. And he came in and he said, "Hey, I will pay eight dollars and eighty cents per share for this uh, for this cable channel." And the stock traded to eight dollars and sixty cents. And if you read through the merger agreement, there were all these interesting things in the merger agreement. But the most interesting one was. It was not only was there no financing condition, which a financing condition says you and I want to go buy something, we say hey, we've got a bank who's going to back us. It said there was no financing condition, but it said Stanley Kroenke, a man who is worth ten billion dollars, personally guarantees that if you sign this deal with him, it will go through. Right. So this is a hundred fifty million dollar cable channel or something, and the stock traded for eight sixty, and the offer price was eight seventy or eight eighty or something, and we said. This is free money, right? Like we have a bidding war situation and the backstop right now is a man whose personal net worth covers this cable channels uh, value, you know, 50 times over. So I think both of us, you know, I I was just out of college, so I was running a personal account and Chris was running a little bit more money. But I think both of us really backed the truck up on this and it turned into a mini bidding war. I I think the final price was like ten dollars per share or something. I'm probably getting some of the numbers wrong. But the basics were there were these really quirky situations and Chris and I worked on a couple of them. That was probably the highlight. Over the years, so when I was, uh, you know, when I was 27 and single and thinking, do I want to go do something on my own or move on? I'd stayed in cr- touch with Chris for a long time. And he said, "Hey, I'd love to work with you. Come on over. You know, we, we'll, you and I and uh, the other people at Rangeley, Rangeley's three or four people, so it's not very big. We'll, uh, we'll kind of run this. You know, we'll, we'll hustle and we'll do whatever we can do. So uh, that's how I kind of came over to Rangeley and started everything.
0: And so it's the the funds is called Special Ops.
1: Yeah, so my fund is called uh Range Capital Special Opportunities and we actually run three funds. We run a uh a SPAC focused fund which uh you know all of a sudden has become we we launched a SPAC focused fund before it was hot, you know, uh, a year yeah. and a half ago we looked at SPACs and we we saw like hey, you know, you can buy these for $10 per share and you get a kind of equity like returns with treasury like risk, right? And all of a sudden this year it's become you buy them for $10 per share and you get like Levered beta times 50 equity to upside returns with treasury risk. So that, that's that been, uh you know, I, I can't talk uh, returns or anything, but that's been really interesting, really good. And anybody's interested in SPACs, we can talk about that. I, I'm obsessed with SPACs, actually. We can talk about that all day if you want. Uh, and then we run an event fund, which is more traditional merger ARB and event. And then Special Ops, which is the fund I run. Um, focus. it's more concentrated investing. And you and I were kind of talking before we started taping, you know, when I launched, I th- think I thought it was going to be much more the traditional deep value, net nets, low price to earning stuff. And over time, probably more as my strategies evolved, it's become a little bit more, hey, you know, the value here is more in, it's in different stuff, right? Like, Yes, it it might look expensive on a trailing basis, but if you look forward three years, it's really cheap or, hey, there's this really complicated merger that's going on. But if you kind of strip out a lot of the merger noise, I think this is going to look good. Or a, a great example is a cable company. Right. Three, four years ago, everyone was concerned about everyone knew what cable cord cutting was. And everyone was concerned about these businesses with cable cord cutting. And three or four years ago, I looked at it and said, hey, well, you know, the revenues go down because video costs $100 per month and cable Internet is $50 per month. But actually, their profits go up because, you know, video, you have to pay ESPN and Disney and all these things. Uh, broadband, your profit is it's basically a 100 percent profit margin at that point. So I was looking at that and saying, hey, like the demand for cable is growing. They've got great pricing power. So you have this thing where the story is revenues going down, cord cutting all this competition. But the actual truth was revenue going down. Profits going up value going up the business was getting more valuable so those are the types of things I, I like to look at
0: so that's an interesting insight let's um, let's talk a little bit about SPACs. what's the what's Love to. what's the uh, so that when, when I first encountered SPACs was uh, probably a little bit more than a decade ago when the way that you played SPACs was you found the ones that were getting close to their uh, the two year period that they had to actually yep. do a deal and they all traded at a big discount to to basically the cash that they had to return and so you played these busted specs so that you basically got the, there are like little little special situations where you basically got the ten dollars back so what's what's changed yep. and what's the what, what's the uh, what's the focus now
1: well you know I think what's changed I, I think that's the way you played most people played them until about a year ago I'd say with uh, it was uh, Chamath's uh, IPOA which turned into Virgin Galactic SPCE which, you know, he bought it, it captured kind of the retail mentality and it went from 10 to 30 in a day. And I think that's the one that really changed the dynamics for these things. Uh, But now what it's become is a SPAC is it's $10 sitting in trust that if you announce a merger with anything that's connected to an electrical vehicle play, it's worth $30 per, per share the next day. Right. So it's almost a license to make money. And I'm obsessed with them because a, you know, like, uh, Pershing Square Holdings right now, right? That that has $20 per share in trust value. And that's a very unique structure we can talk about, but it trades at $25 per share right now. So investors are saying, hey, Bill Ackman, Bill Ackman's the one who runs Pershing Square, we like you so much that the the $500 million you're sitting on, we're gonna value that at uh, $700 million, right? Uh, 600 million, $700 million. And not only that, but When you when you do this deal, we're going to get diluted down because the founder shares uh, are going to dilute us down. So we actually think you're going to be able to announce a deal that's so good that you're basically going to create 40 percent of value out of thin air. And that's actually, uh, you know, you see a lot of these, the EV specs, they're all agreeing to mergers that value them at a billion. And the next day the market's saying no, you're worth four or five billion. And it's just insane to me that, you know, two rational parties, if you and I announce the deal at one hundred million dollars, and the markets came around and valued that deal at $300 million, it, it would just seem weird to me.
0: Yeah. So, is that something that is uh, sustainable, do you think?
1: Uh, I don't think it's sustainable. So, you know, this year, I think, I don't have the stats for any, but I think there's going to be 300 SPAC IPOs. And in a normal year, there's like, I think there's something like 80 normal IPOs, 80 to 120. So, if you think about that, there's going to be almost three times as many SPAC IPOs as normal IPOs this year and uh that there's not 3 times as many kind of IPOable companies so i think at some point there has to be a reckoning where there's just not enough companies to go public through these spacs so Uh, You know, I've been thinking, do I want to do a 2021 piece? But if I did, like one of my predictions for 2021 is a lot of these SPACs that haven't announced deals are just going to they're going to go without deals and they're going to have to liquidate and pay their ten dollars per share back or they're going to announce deals. And at some point, investors are going to say that company is not a public company ready company. You pay too much, all this. And I think we're going to see a lot of SPACs end up liquidating would be one of my predictions for SPACs. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be great SPACs in there. Uh, But I do think we're going to see a lot of SPACs liquidating on the back end of this.
0: So with a SPAC-focused fund, how do you pass the opportunities?
1: Uh, You know, so I I help a lot on the SPAC-focused fund, but uh, Chris actually manages the the SPAC-focused fund, so I, I don't want to put words in his mouth per se. But, you know, what it originally started as was, hey, we're going to go buy... Again, this was before kind of the SPCE like mania, and it was, hey, We're going to do a lot of diligence on the managers. We're going to invest in managers we like at $10 per share, right? We're going to have this parked in trust. And if they announce a deal we like, great. But most likely what we're looking to do is kind of fund the deal and not take a lot of upside risk. But again, I, I don't want to speak particularly to the SPAC-focused fund. I'm happy to talk my views on SPACs, but I don't want to speak to the SPAC-focused fund, if that makes sense. All right.
0: Well, let's talk special ops. Let's talk about the strategy yeah. in special ops and uh, where you're finding opportunities.
1: Yeah. Well, not to not to bring it back to SPACs, but what again, uh Well, the strategy for special ops, uh, it varies, but I always want to pay, you know, I want to buy something for less than it's worth is the overall strategy, right? I'm a value investor, but it it varies over time. You know, when I launched special ops, I thought that the definition of that was I buy things for four times price earnings when the market's at 10 times price earnings or, you know, I buy net nets and over time that's evolved. Uh, One of the things I, I found really interesting, like. Being on the other side of the SPAC mania craze is what I like to call it. So, you know, I I published a piece on Pershing Square Holdings, right? The volatility on that thing is off the charts right now. And I'll put a disclaimer out there. Options are risky. Everyone should consult a financial advisor. You know, options are like big boy plays. You don't want to do this naked. But uh, Pershing Square Holdings right now trades for twenty five dollars per share. They do not have a deal announced. They have twenty dollars per share in cash. You can go write a put option for twenty dollars per share for March. Uh, and right now, I think you'd get paid. Uh, it was more when we were doing this, but you'd get paid about 30 cents. So you'd get 1.5% of your money back for three months for writing $20 per share put. But if you think about what needs to happen for Pershing Square to go below $20 per share, which is their trust value, the only way that could really happen is if they announced the deal and the market hated the deal so much that right now, but the market's saying, Bill, $20 per share in your hands worth $25, they say, oh, actually your deal was worth less than $20. Not only that, but you'd have the option to redeem your shares for $20 per share, right? So the only way that it could go below that is if they could close a deal before that uh, before that option expired. And if you look at the history of SPACs, it takes about 90 days from deal announced to deal close. So this I don't again, options are risky. I don't ever want to say free money, but it, it looks kind of like free money because there's just there's no way that this that they could announce a deal and close it before these options expire. Right. So you write the put. If it goes below 20, you'll have the shares put to you. But then you'll just redeem them into any Bill Ackman deal. And there's a lot of different ways to kind of play the SPAC mania. And I think it's because SPACs have done so well. The implied volatility on the SPACs, it's it's higher than Tesla. It's higher than Moderna. You know, it's higher than Moderna, which just had a COVID vaccine approved. And nobody knows what the financials of rolling out a COVID vaccine is or how many doses they're going to be or how many, vaccine manufacturers they're going to be. But the volatility on these SPACs is higher than that. And it, this is for cash shells, right? And that's just something that fascinates me to no end.
0: I think the Moderna insiders have an idea. I see them doing a lot of selling.
1: <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting. And I'm not a Moderna expert, but they've been selling really heavily since 60, 70, right? And now Moderna at 150, 160. And I do think there's a lot of these places. You know, Tesla. Tesla's a a longtime favorite of every value investor to dunk on, right? And (laughs) Tesla, for a long time, we had a short position in it to our huge detriment. But, uh, you know, I, I remember when it was $200 per share before the split and insiders were selling you know they would have options that didn't uh that didn't expire till 2027 and they would sell the day those options vested so they'd give up six years of the option premium for one of the highest volatility stocks on the market just to get their cash and you know i think value investors looked at this and said oh my god that's one of the biggest red flags i've ever seen and similar to Moderna, hey they're selling everything they can at 60 or 70 they probably think the pfizer vaccine's better well You know, it's short term because they were doing that over the summer and now we're in the winter and the stock's at 150. But Tesla, you know, Tesla's a 12x since the CFO was selling every share he could get his hand on.
0: (laughs) Tesla defies all uh, gravity logic as far as I can see.
1: You know, I, so I listened to uh, not to pitch someone else's podcast, but Bill Brewster had the acquirer's podcast, which I, I've really been enjoying. Oh, you just went on it. I, I haven't yeah. gotten to listen to your episode. You <laughs> tape a two and a half hour episode. It's tough to, to find time for. But I will because uh, I've really enjoyed it. But uh, he had uh, Super, Maga, Super Magatu on there. And he said, look, when, when you and I are talking and we we're like, it's an electric car company. They're never going to make money. And then the bulls are talking and saying they're going to put something on the moon. Like the, <laughs> they're going to the put something on Mars, there, you know? Yeah
0: um when you're uh t- one of the one of the strategies that you were talking about earlier was uh, looking at something that can grow significantly over the next three years you buy it cheap now relative to where it can grow to so ha- what what sort of companies fit that profile and how are you thinking about those
1: yeah so uh a good classic example would be uh match.com which uh it- one of my favorite companies, one of my favorite investors to follow is IAC, which is Barry Diller's uh, holding company. And I just love how, A, they look at the world and, B, how they've evolved over the years. Uh, but, you know, about three years ago, I got really into Match.com. And this is one of the ones that really kind of opened my eyes as an investor, I would say. And uh, Match.com shares were at about $18 per share at the time. And I had just met my, no, I, yeah, I had just met my soon to be wife online and you know we met on a a tinder competitor but all my friends were on tinder and everyone was on tinder and there was this big debate you know people would say oh match trades at 30 times EBITDA how are they ever going to justify this valuation and i said 30 times EBITDA like are you are you guys crazy like tinder hasn't even started monetizing yet people would say how is tinder ever going to monetize and i'd say well they've got every 20 or 30 year old in the country is on tinder looking for their life partner or you know looking for a one night stand but they're looking for something and at some point if everyone's on the product doing that like they're going to be able to monetize this and it's going to be absolutely enormous when they figure out the right way to monetize this so uh you know match was at 18 then and we're th- about three years later three and a half years later from when i put out my piece on them and match today is around 150 dollars per share and you know I-, I think that's looking and saying hey the financials they have zero value from uh, from Tinder in them at that time, basically. And Tinder is the biggest product of all time I, I, for for sex. It is, uh, and you know a similar one right now. I just published a piece, you know, history rhymes. Uh, Angie's List, which Home Advisor's Angie, which is Angie's List Home Advisor, handy if you've ever used them. They're trying to build out the local marketplace for home services, right? And this morning, Facebook announced that, the, or the information had an article that said Facebook is looking into moving into this uh, this product category. And Angie stock kind of opened down 10%. And I said history rhymes because two and a half years ago, Facebook announced they were moving into online dating and matches stock fell 20%. And here we are three years later. Nobody uses Facebook dating and Match's stock is a 5X since then. And, you know, with Angie's list, I think history kind of rhymes because Facebook wants to move in there. I think they've got a lot of uh, local market network effects, similar, similar, but, you know, it rhymes. It's not the same, but it's similar to what Match had in local dating. I think Angie's too far ahead for Facebook to really make the moves that they would need to make to beat them. And, uh, you know, I think Match was a 5X over two and a half years. And, it, it, that's a really good outcome, but I think Angie could be a five x over the next three to five years because of that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I saw uh, Rishi Gosalia had a comment uh, either under your tweet or under another one where he said that if it's not in the top five priorities for a trillion dollar company, it's it just doesn't get. It, it's like a poorly funded startup, and so he didn't think it was going to yeah. be much of a competitor.
1: No, I I think that's great. You know, for years, everyone's been saying Netflix is dead, dead in the water, right? Apple is going to roll out Apple TV, and it's going to be free and everybody's going to cancel their Netflix subscription. Amazon's going to put Amazon Prime TV in there and it's going to and everybody's going to cancel the Netflix subscription because they already have Prime. Why would they pay for Netflix? And the answer is Netflix is fanatical about one thing. That's video they have. I actually like some some shows on other services better, but they've got the the best service you know like little things like if you watch disney plus uh if you watch an episode uh at the end the credits pop up and you have to watch all the way through to the end of the credits for it to go to the next show if you're on Disney Plus. If you're on Netflix, you don't have that issue. You watch to the end of the show, you see two seconds of credits, and then boom, next episode. Yeah. And that seems like a small thing, but that just shows there's a maniacal focus on uh, delivering the best consumer experience at Netflix, which Disney Plus which Disney Plus is Disney's priority right now. They don't have that yet, right? Amazon, Amazon TV, they've never had that. And for something like Angie's List Home Advisor. Their one focus is on figuring out the consumer marketplace for local services. Facebook, that's priority eight. You know they've got to they've got to stop from being broken up. They've got to steal all Snapchat stuff. Mark Zuckerberg has to go cook his kill his own meat and eat his own dinner tonight. Like that, that's not high up on the priorities for them. So it's probably not going to work.
0: Uh, how do you find your ideas, and then how do you sort of filter and validate what you what you're looking for?
1: Uh, ideas all over the place. You know, I, I, think, I think it's tough for anyone to say they have proprietary idea sourcing at this point, because we all kind of look in the same wells, I'd say, you know, value investors, um, Sum zero seeking out, like all these places varying qualities, but I think everybody's kind of looking in the same place. We all follow the same 13 Fs and everything. So, I'd say all, all of those. I think the best place actually has been one of the great things about having an online presence has been people will shoot you, uh, will kind of ping you and say, hey, this seems like it's up your alley. And a lot of times they'll come with a fully kind of fleshed out thesis and they'll say, what do you think? And I'll say, oh, oh, that, that looks really cool. You know, the one I'm most jealous of, uh, Mike over at Non Gap, who I sing his praises all the time, but he's, you know, he's done incredible work with St oh, this company, they have uh, they normally grant options in June. This year, they granted them in March. Yeah. They're probably doing that because they think the stock's going to go up a lot before June. And now I'm really jealous because I think a lot of people do ping him and say, hey – my company normally grants options in June, and they just granted a bunch of options in January. What do you think? So he's got this great kind of incoming thing of, "Hey, these people are repricing their options at the interesting times." But I think that's actually been the best, uh, the best place for looking at them for getting op- interesting ideas recently. So
0: you're getting a, you're getting a, a a source of ideas externally being brought to you. That's that's ideal. Uh,
1: I, I think it's. R- you know everybody gets their ideas though in place i do think that's one proprietary place where i have it and then at this point you know i followed so many companies for so long that a lot of them will you know they they, they kind of recycle in waves right like discovery discovery communications i followed that for years and i kind of at the end of november leading to their investor day i kind of thought it got interesting and i had five years worth of notes built up over that and a long history with it so you know you follow companies for a long time they recycle but the external ideas uh, I do think there is something to that
0: let's talk about discovery because that's been cheap for a little while uh, the the yeah. the the bare case on it is that it's the um, the programming that people don't necessarily seek out it's sort of programming that you put on in the back in the background while you're doing something else, and you might not necessarily go and pay for it if it's unbundled. But what's the what's mm-hmm. the uh, what's what's your take on it?
1: Uh, look, I, I think they laid out the bear case well. I think the bull case would be: Hey, if you if you subscribe to the cable bundle right now, right? The cable bundle is effectively sports, news, and discovery. And the cable bundle does want to offer something for the viewer who doesn't want sports or news. And increasingly, that is Discovery, right? And Discovery's argument is, hey, you know, half of women who watch TV in America watch us. And if you look at our pricing per hour versus a ESPN or any of these sports things, like we are massively undervalued. And by the way, you know, right now in the cable bundle, you pay $2 per month for us versus, you know, $10 for just ESPN. And that's $2 per month for HGTV, food, uh, Discovery, all these shows. We're going to switch it over at some point to Discovery Plus and people will pay six dollars per month for Discovery Plus. And, you know, so that means as we go from the bundled world to the unbundled world, maybe we lose half of our subs, but we get three X the pricing. So I think that's the bull case. You know, I've I've never quite gotten there on the bull case because I do think the bear case has a lot to it where. Yes, I do think they've got great personalities people seek out like Guy Fieri, all all these things, Chip and Joe, 90 Day Fiance, all this type of stuff. But, you know, you do run into, hey, for $15 per month, I can get Netflix and Netflix has planet Earth and all that type of stuff. And for 80 percent of households, is that enough kind of natural programming versus actually going out and paying six dollars for discovery? I don't know. But it is very cheap, and I think there's a lot of interesting optionality there. And, and the bull case would be, hey, Discovery is launching Discovery Plus as we speak, and go look at what Disney stock did when they, from Disney Plus launched today. If Discovery does that, and by the way, they've got tons of cash flow and all this sort of stuff, I mean, it's, it's a ginormous home run.
0: Um, when you're managing the portfolio, so how do, you think, how do you size positions when they come in? Do you trim? Do you rebalance? How do you think about diversification?
1: You know, it's always evolving. So the way I've run Special Ops is generally um, about 20 positions, three to five core positions that are going to be uh, very large. They're going to make up three to five positions are going to make up 60 to 75 percent of the portfolio. So quite concentrated. And then the other 15 percent of the positions which make up, let's say, 25 percent, you know, that's pretty small. So those are more eventy type stuff. Interesting names like these SPAC type ideas like the Persian Square we talked about would kind of fit in there. And, and it varies. You know, I, I with the cable companies, you know, a, a couple years ago, Charter was at 300 and I thought it was I thought it was enormously undervalued today. Charter is at 650. I don't I think it's undervalued. I don't think it's as undervalued. But, you know, if you're selling, there's tax consequences, all that. So it's it's very difficult. And, you know, selling a, ch- a cable company where I've got such clear line of sight to their future versus a discovery where you might think there's a lot of upside, but there are a lot of more questions on that. Uh, it's really tough to give a firm answer.
0: So, yeah, but the uh, what about diversification? Does that does that play into it or you just take the opportunities where you can where you find them?
1: Uh, you know, diversification, it, it's tough. It, again, it evolves over the years because I do think like there were times where my three best ideas were three cable companies. And if I had just gone with those and kind of hashtag never sold. I think I would have outperformed a lot versus what I actually did, which was have one cable company be a ginormous position, it kind of ignore the other two and diversify into things that I didn't like as much, but that didn't have the same cable company risk. But, you know, you can say that now with the benefit of hindsight versus, you know, I, I know a lot of people who two years ago oil was their best idea and they had three oil companies were their three largest positions and you no know, benefit of hindsight. That was a mistake. So it's tough it's always evolving i wish i had like a real straight firm answer for you that you and i could write a book about and put it down and our <laughs> listeners would walk away but i really don't you know i do think there's a lot especially when you run a more concentrated portfolio i think there's a lot of art versus science to it and uh you know i'm always trying to improve that art side of it
0: how's your how's your uh, fund structured uh, what do you mean is it a limited partnership or are you um managed to cancel how, how do you do it
1: it's a hedge fund. It's a hedge fund.
0: Yeah. And so, um, when you're when you're, I mean, that's that, that creates its own problems when you're reasonably concentrated and you've got money flowing in and out. How do you how do you handle the flows? How do you think about that?
1: Well, we're we're still in startup mode, so uh, most of the most, and I, I say most, but I think all the investors I, I know and we talk to, and, and it's been a debate. You know, I think we structured it so. There are benefits to investing for, you know, you get lower fee classes, you get better fee classes and better terms for having a longer term uh, time horizon and committing to a little bit more of a lockup and stuff. And, you know, we've talked to them. uh, I I do think it's kind of cliche, but. I I don't like people like to say shareholder base is a company's edge, which I, I don't believe that at all. You know, uh, I think companies are going to get valued like they, they get valued at some point. And, uh, I think people who say that are only saying that for really high multiple companies, but I do think for a hedge fund, like a shareholder, your hedge fund base can be a little bit of an edge. Like you need to talk to them, make sure that there's a similarity in vision. You know, the, the one nightmare I think most hedge fund managers have is the Michael Burry situation where, uh, you know, in 2006, 2007, everyone's redeeming and pulling money from you because you underperform a little bit short term when you actually had like that killer 100x idea and it just needed a little bit more time to play out. But you had um, you had probably some more institutional investors who didn't really know you, who measured you on short term performance and marks and all of that.
0: Yeah, that makes it tough. Um, when you think about uh, the level of the market, does that play any role in what? Hey, whether you're carrying some cash or whether you're sort of sizing up positions
1: again, more art than science, but I will say that's really evolved uh, for me, particularly over this year with, you know, I came into this year, I thought markets fairly valued, but I I thought there were some really interesting opportunities out there. And then like you have COVID and things pull back really quickly and not having cash to play. There is just, uh, you know, I think, if you and I had just gone to the beach and slept and then we woke up in March with the past 10 years, we'd had 100% of our portfolio in cash. And then we kind of woke up in March deployed it all from March 15th to March 31st. And that's all we did. Like we'd probably outperform 99% of funds, right? So
0: Your 10-year uh, track record still looked pretty good.
1: It, it would. Uh, so I think a little bit for me has been, hey, even when you've got a lot of interesting, great ideas, like inter- really interesting, good ideas, there is something to, hey, hold a little bit back for – things just get absolutely more crazy or, you know, you have the Facebook announces the Facebook announces match dating and matches stock is down 30% because everyone's losing their minds and nobody's thinking, uh, you know, Facebook has a problem here and it's going to take them years to roll out. And is this really going to be top priority? So it's evolved a little bit to, Hey, even it's not that I'm paying attention to the market, but I want to make sure I've got a little bit something held back for when everything goes from good to, Oh my God, screamingly amazing. Awesome.
0: Um, one of the interesting things that you raised before, Mike uh, Nongap, he just tweeted this out, but it's something that I saw Dan Lowell made the comment a little earlier that he looks for these, and, and I think that Match and Angie List probably meet this definition where maybe it's not, it's not necessarily activism, but where there's some activist event, and then a better company gets spun out, and if you just hold those, I mean, this is, this is almost like the reverse Greenblatt, where Greenblatt used to say, buy the company that had got in the spin, buy whatever's got sold, Most heavily, right, and everybody did that for a long time, and all of those returns kind of went away, and I think it's sort of slowly slowly drifted to the other side of the boat now, where you buy the better company in a spin, and I think that's what Dan Loeb was saying that out of the when they when they do their activism and they sort of cause a company to be spun out, and they found that that's the event that leads to a kind of a compounder type, you know, more focused management team in a slightly better business and given enough time that can work. And so he was he was sort of floating an idea where you just buy these things, uh, just p- sort of put them away in a never sell portfolio and let them go like coffee can these ideas because you're, you're getting a much better business. Do you, do you sort of, do you see that anywhere? Is that a, is that?
1: It's an interesting thought because I, I agree with a lot of, like, you know, I do think 20 years ago, spin-offs were all the rage. And I still look at pretty much every spin. But I think companies also got wise to that where, hey, if we spin shitty assets, uh, a, a bunch of event, event investors are just going to come buy these assets and we can kind of offload our assets, have an inflated price for a second. We'll restrike all our stock options. The, the crappy company can go raise a bunch of equity if they need to. Like, I think they got wise to that. I, and I do think there is something to... Hey, you spin off the bad business and we're living in a world of a lot of uh, we're living in a world with, you know, we've never seen returns to scale like the Internet world allows. So if you spin a bad company off from a good company and that good company can fo- focus and kind of go from good to great, like the returns to that are astronomical. Right. So I, there's certainly something to do that.
0: What, uh, what what are you uh, hunting for at the moment? How's your how's your strategy sort of evolved? Is there anything particularly interesting right now?
1: Well, we mentioned SPACs. I think, um, you know, I don't want to go long every EV company at all, but I do think there's a lot of interesting dynamics around SPACs. Uh, again, options are risky, but I, like the it's been widely, everyone knows about the, the SPAC uh, warrant things where, you know, their warrants will trade for a 40% discount to the stock. And I actually think there's reasons for that. And a lot of reasons have to do with like, uh, the warrants aren't fully exercisable yet. The stock's not borrowable, so shorts kind of can't arb that. So I, I'm not sure if there's opportunity there or if it's actually a function of like um, no borrow availability. But there's definitely interesting opportunities with SPAC. That's obviously far, far, far more on the eventy side. But then on the uh, you know on the on the more value side, Angie's list is something I'm looking at. I think a lot of these companies that aren't growing 30% per year they're maybe they're growing 5, 10, 15% but they lead their categories and there's the possibility for them to kind of I like to call it leveling up into uh, kind of tangential services and stuff. I think a lot of those companies sell at really interesting multiples and have a lot of interesting optionality in a bunch of different ways. You know, uh, a lot of like Finchwit's favorites, Dropbox, right now. I think yeah. that's super interesting. Yeah, uh, that's one of Finchwitz's favorite. Again, Angie's list is one that I really like, and there's a couple more I'm working on that I think are pretty interesting.
0: How well do you know Dropbox? Very well. So do you want to do you want to give us the Dropbox thesis? Because it looks like it's transitioned from being a uh, kind of a, a more fintech kind of science experiment to they're, they're now it's starting to look like a real business.
1: Yeah. So, so the Dropbox thesis, I, I think, at, I'm, I'm trying to pull up all, all my notes here, so I give you, I can give you precise numbers. Uh, I don't know if that's going to work with the the podcast, but the thesis is really simple, right? Like Dropbox has a hundred million plus. Uh, hundred million plus people use Dropbox. I think they have about fifteen million uh, active paying users, right? And when you you look at that, this is a product that people are using. Like I use Dropbox to save all my files. That should be a very sticky business. It trades very cheaply. It's run by you know everybody loves the founder or CEO. It's run by uh, Drew the founder. He still runs it. He's got a he's got a very uh, option stock price, heavy incentive system. He owns a lot of stock, but he's also you can see this in the 10 day. He's got I think it's called the Founders Grant, where if the stock hits 30, he gets a he gets one payout, 32, 35, all the sorts of stuff. They lay out all their targets. Uh, they say, hey, we're going to do a billion of cash flow by I think it's 2023. And uh, if you look at their history of meeting the numbers they put out, you know, this is a company that does not miss when they give guidance. They they consistently beat their guidance. So I think you add it all up and you say, hey, cheap company run by a founder who, by the way, I, I think nobody gives him credit, but he's a founder of Dropbox and he tried to buy Slack for, I think it was a billion dollars. And I, I believe the story is his board turned him down, right? And Slack just got bought by thir- for $35 billion by uh, Salesforce. And you know there is a lot of people like to say, oh, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for a million dollars or something, right? Well, it's probably a different company and a different product in someone else's hands. But I do think there is something to, here's this heavily incentivized founder who built Dropbox, who saw the future clearly enough to want to buy Slack for a billion dollars. And I think there would've been huge synergies there. Like there's always a, most of these guys have kind of product number two or insight number two when they do this. You know, Jeff Bezos had not just Amazon, he had Amazon Web Services and a bunch of other ones. Um, I think that this guy, he's going to have a product number too, right? And even if he doesn't, if you just look at the core business you're paying for, you're paying a very cheap multiple. And if they hit their long-term numbers, you're paying a super cheap multiple. And again, this is a company that doesn't miss numbers. So I think it's cheap. I think it's got optionality. I think it's got a great founder. Uh, I think that's kind of the overall financial pitch for it.
0: And he sits on the Facebook board too. So there's always a potential for something there.
1: Yeah, You know, I think they're i think you're right but what would the facebook dropbox synergies be and does facebook really want to get into another acquisition when they've got the ftc breathing down their back saying hey your past acquisitions have done too well we have to take them back from you
0: (laughs) the instagram acquisition when it was like two guys in a bloomberg it was like 15 guys with a money losing product
1: it's so so i i talked earlier about how match opened my eyes and instagram i remember uh People hated on them. It was, I think, the numbers were thirty nine employees for a billion dollars, and Facebook paid all stock. and People said, "Are you insane? Thirty nine employees, no it's revenue, a billion yeah. dollars." And, and that was one of the ones where I looked at it and I said, "Are you guys crazy? Like this has thirty million active users, and they they just bought this, and the synergies between are going to be huge. Like this seems like a pretty darn good deal if you look at the optionality." And uh, so that's a different story. But yeah, you know, for Dropbox, I do think there are companies that could acquire them. You know. Who thought Salesforce was going to buy Slack? I, I don't think a lot of people thought that was going to happen and they paid a very nice premium for that business. I don't think Dropbox fits quite as neatly into any company's uh, portfolio, but there's a lot of people who have Dropbox downloaded. They've got a lot of credit cards on file. You know, I, I think there's a lot of different things that Dropbox could do either as someone else's acquisition target or for Dropbox going and growing the business.
0: Yeah, I, I like Dropbox as an opportunity too. I, I also like the um, the idea of fighting these guys. who have got product number two. I think that's a good approach.
1: Yeah, I, I, and you look at the history of guys who build multi billion dollar businesses. I mean, it's not guaranteed because there's there's a lot of luck to building a multi billion dollar business. But you know, everybody wants to back these founder led huge growth stories. And there's Dropbox sitting right there, right. multi billion dollar company led by its founder CEO. He's got you know. He owns a lot of equity he's got a lot of uh optionality to grow the company and he's proven that he he can see the ball really clearly going forward i, I think it's kind of crazy that you can get the optionality of him doing something for for more than free
0: it meets that rule of 40 it's just that it, it's not so much on the growth side i think it's the problem
1: yeah yeah i mean if dropbox you know if they if their profits were a little lower but their growth was a little higher i think people would be going crazy that's it and there is you know The big question with them is there are terminal value questions because a lot of what they do, you can get for free on Google Drives. You can get for free from a bunch of other places. So I hear that, but it comes back to what we said with Angie's, versus, Angie's List versus Facebook, right? Like Dropbox, one thing is storage and making your life easier with storage. That's probably 15th down the line for Google and for Microsoft. A lot of people are pay, putting their money where their mouth is and like paying for this product. I, I think they're focused. And I think they can do a lot with it.
0: There's also a reasonable argument for an independent, if you don't want to be associated with Google or with Apple or with whoever else, you can go and work with Dropbox and it's a totally independent company. And
1: they've made this argument before and they've even said like they were doing a lot of integrations with Slack. I kind of thought them and Slack still might get together, like, you know, the the coalition of the independent stuff. But you know, just like something simple, like if you are, if you use Google Sheets for your business and I use uh, I use Microsoft Excel and we're going back and forth, like that can make it really, diff- really difficult. And like, it probably doesn't matter for us, but if you're a lawyer and you're c- all your clients are on different products and stuff, having an independent thing that integrates with all of them actually has a lot of value for for them. Uh, so yeah.
0: I like the product number two idea a lot because uh, I think that th- another good example of that is uh, Jack at Twitter with his, um, his secondary square and now Cash App. It seems to be a pretty yep. good uh, example of that product number two doing quite well i just wish you could do a little bit more with product number one
1: (laughs) yeah i was about to say some people might argue that square was product number one and Twitter's like accidental mess up product number zero or something but yeah i mean jack and twitter uh elon with what 17 different businesses now Uh, there there are a lot of examples of these and it's it's tough but it's tough but i just i love getting that optionality for free
0: do you uh have any other good examples do you have any other uh interesting opportunities
1: uh let's see i'm <laughs> just pitching the whole book pitching the whole book <laughs> why not what, what else what else do i have i been researching a lot recently uh, so I, I don't you know i put a lot on the blog i'm just trying to think of ones that I, i've been into recently not necessarily recommendations or anything um
0: hmm. we were on a small and micro cap panel recently how do you how do you come to be on the small and micro cap panel from a background in small and micro cap rather than like a current focus
1: uh you know i i think again when i launched special ops i thought i think i thought the uh how i was going to build it and structure it and how i thought about the world was going to be very different so i've got a lot of background i still spend a lot of time looking at small and microcap co- companies actually one of the things I, I kick myself in regret is there were two or three real winners on the smaller microcap side that i think i did the classic uh value investor thing and i sold out way way too early um but you know, something I like that I expel, I, I have an article on Seeking Alpha the day 3M filed a lawsuit against them saying that I think they're going to win that. And I think my cost basis was $1.50 and I sold for two. <laughs> Infuse system was one where I had a huge position in it. And uh, I, I think that trades for 15. And, you know, you know it, it again, it's one of those things I'm trying to evolve and learn from. But a, a lot of these times when you find a good company and they, you know, if you're a value investor and they trade from eight times earnings, to 12 times earnings. A lot of times you say that's enough, but if it's a good company and you've really built conviction and you understand it, you can say, oh, it's 12 times trailing earnings, but it's two times what I think their two years ahead of earnings are. Or it's half times what I think like kind of the strategic optionality to an acquirer is five years out. So uh, if I, I spent a lot of time looking at Microsoft. Infuse Systems
0: ahead. was a net net, wasn't it?
1: Oh, Infuse system was a net net. They had uh, accounting issues They had all these issues. And for years, I mean, I talked to their board, I I, I was helpful. And they had an activist who uh, who kind of reconstituted the board. I was helpful to him. Eventually, I just got, you know, I had held it for three years and the IRR was kind of middling and I just got sick of they they were always promising and they never delivered and the market just didn't seem to care. And I think the day I sold was two days before the stock has gone on like a five times run. But that was one where I actually I think I saw the value very clearly. Again, I, I don't know if I'm making myself look like a loser or trying to pay, pay myself as a profit. It's neither. I'm just saying. Like, I, I think I saw I saw the value clearly, and I got a little sick of it. And it got like, you know, I was married to hey, this I want to buy this for less than ten earnings. The day it went over ten earnings, I sold it, and that was uh, that was a mistake.
0: So where do you fall on on never sell or selling as a value guy? What's the process?
1: uh you know, I don't. I, I think you I think you sell, but you sell. I'm not a never sell guy, and I do think a lot of never sell is the current environment where we're looking at companies that have scale that we've never seen before. Right, like if you were in the 1920s and you practiced never sell, any decade but this decade, never sell would have been an awful decade to practice. I think some of never sell is zero percent interest rates lets you pull pull a lot of the future value forward, and I think some of never sell is a correct identification that in today's environment, you know. Walmart 50 years ago, they were going to take a lot of value, but they couldn't take all the value. Whereas today, if you take if you're the winner in a market, you take all the value in that market and you might take all the value in every tangential market to you. Right. So I think a lot of never sell is identifying, Hey, you don't sell a business when it's priced at 50 times earnings, because if it goes and takes five tangential markets, it's two times earnings. So (laughs) I kind of disagree with, I, I think they've identified something Hold really good companies until they take every kind of thing they can take, but I I think NeverSell will reach its limits at some point as well.
0: Yeah, I think that so I mean, I think it's I I think it's cyclical too. we we saw it in the seventies with the Nifty Fifty. I think we saw it also in the yeah. late nineteen nineties, not with the dot com stocks, but just with there are a lot of really good stocks. Walmart was one. Microsoft was one. Uh, Great point. G, they just got. Exp- I mean, G, not such a great business now, but it was. You know, Neutron Jack was kind of the CEO of probably the preceding yeah. decade at the time, and all of those companies just bumped sideways for ten or fifteen years after that point. Even though there were great businesses underneath and still compounding at a high rate, they were just uh, too expensive, and it took a while for the underlying business to catch up with the stock price.
1: And you know, Microsoft is an interesting one because. Bill Gates retires G would be different because I think people look back on Jack Welsh a lot differently with the benefit of yeah. hindsight. But Microsoft is really interesting because Bill Gates retires and they had he hands the greatest portfolio of tech assets in history uh, to the guy. It's uh, Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer. Yeah. The, uh, he hands him the greatest it- and the guy bungles it for 15 years. And if he hadn't been kind of like nicely forced out, I mean, what does Microsoft do? Uh, they, they missed a ton of boats, but their assets were so good that they could survive 15 years of mismanagement. You look at a lot of these uh, companies today, right? Facebook, Amazon, their founders still have a very long runway ahead of them. So I don't think it's a super near-term problem, but at some point, someone else is going to be running those assets. And, you know, Apple, Tim Cook's been great, uh, but you do kind of sometimes look at Apple and say, hey, what has Apple done under his uh, under him, aside from continue kind of, the Apple iPhone, Apple Watch, like everything under Steve Jobs, they've just continued, and those assets were so great. But they haven't really introduced anything new, I would say. Facebook, Amazon, all these guys, at some point, someone else is going to run them, and how does that look after five years of someone who isn't the founder running them?
0: I think the AirPods have been pretty successful. That might be a that might be one uh, one product people you're like. Prob-
1: you're probably right, but they're successful, but they're built on the iOS ecosystem, and. Any other company would love to have an EarPod success, but does that really budge the needle for Apple?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Um, We're coming up on time, Andrew. If uh, folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah. I think the best way Twitter it, it, it's so it, it's so cliche at this point. But you know, I, I post a lot on Twitter. If you slide into my DMS on Twitter, I feel like I'm pretty responsive. So uh, Andrew Rangeley on Twitter is a great way. I run yet another value blog, which you you can follow me. I, I write semi-frequently on there uh yet another value podcast which you'll have to come on at some point where i try to talk to guests really dive deeply into one stock idea uh is kind of how i've done it i've tried other formats but that's really where i'm most passionate i think the best conversations are and uh yeah i I think those are the best ways
0: well that's great uh andrew walker rangeley thank you very much
1: hey thanks for having me on man